All right, good morning, everyone. My apologies for my voice. Um, I have Ebola. Um, not really, but uh, Wendy says I have allergies, and I've told her all my life I don't have allergies, so it's got to be something much, much worse. Uh, but I do have allergies, and they're kind of working their way around uh, with a, the, the rain and the classrooms and the tree pollen and everything else, so please uh, forgive me for my voice this morning. Um, I also want to say um, I just am in awe of our youth group. Um, it was two years ago yesterday that uh, Becky Spielman came on as our youth director, and she has built the youth group up. You see uh, 12 youth up here this morning that are, they are serving, they are, they are studying, they're getting to know each other, they're loving each other. Um, I even heard uh, one person say, uh, or their parents told me that they went into school and they saw uh, one of the youth members, and it was so exciting that they could just have somebody that they know from their church. And I'm just, I'm so excited to see uh, what's happening in, in just two short years. Uh, we've got a missions trip going on. They're going to be actually doing uh, a youth service. You guys know about that, right? Okay, good. Yeah. <laughs> A youth service on October 7th, um, and uh, of course I always look forward to the spaghetti dinner and um, overpaying uh, generously for whatever auction items that come up uh, so that they can have money to do the things they want to do. How many of you remember uh, getting a job? Any job, maybe your first job, maybe your 10th job. You remember getting a job, right? Um, do you remember what the first day on your job was like. Most of us didn't really actually do work on our first day. We had to go to somebody like Wendy, my wife, uh, who is in HR. And we had to go and we had to sign our lives away with all kinds of things. Um, and, you know, as part of, Wendy tells me about her job all the time. She's an HR specialist. And part of her job is to sit down and onboard employees. It sounds really fancy, doesn't it? Onboard employees. And uh, she kind of tells them everything they need to know about working for Hope International. She tells them about their benefits, and she tells them about all the different things that they do. And it sounds very exciting. Um, I've been at home sometimes when she's been kind of like uh, Zooming with somebody that they're onboarding, and I can kind of hear in the background. And it's just very exciting to, to get that job. You remember that excitement when you, when you get that job. And this happens for students, too. They get onboarded every single year. You guys don't know it yet, but you get onboarded. And tell me if this happened to you. First couple of days at school, you had, like, assemblies. And you, you didn't? Wow. First, day of our, first couple of days of our school, our administration, like, pulled every grade down to the auditorium and they went over everything they needed to know about going to school. They talked about the rules, and they talked about the activities, and they talked about all of this stuff. And it was supposed to help them get ready for school. Now, if you're in ninth grade, that's great. First time you're hearing that stuff, when you're a senior, you just want to get out. You're ready. You're gone. But whether you're starting a new job or starting a new school year, one of the things that you are asked to do and parents, you probably are asked to do this too, is to read the handbook. How many of you had your students bring a handbook home from school, or at least a paper that they said, here, sign this saying that you 
have read the handbook. No parents? Nobody? Okay. We get that every year. I don't even think we've ever read the handbook once. Well, Wendy probably has because she's in HR and she wants to know those things. That's light reading for her. She enjoys that. But how many of you have read your student handbook? <laughs> One person has read their student handbook. How many of you, when you got that job, read the employee handbook from cover to cover before you signed saying, I read the handbook from cover to cover? A few of you, not too many. Wendy, Wendy estimates about 25% at her job actually read the handbook, and she knows that because people come up and ask her questions about things that are right there in the handbook that she says, you know, hey, it's on page eight of the handbook. Let me, let me show you where it is. So we get these handbooks. We get these kinds of, of ideas of what it is that we're supposed to do, and there's a code of conduct, and there's all kinds of things going on. So how are we supposed to know? How are you guys supposed to know? How are you as employees supposed to know what is expected of you by the company? Not about your job, but just about working for the company or going to the school. How are we supposed to know what's expected of us if we don't read the book? It's very difficult, and it, it brings up a lot of questions. Well, how am I supposed to do this? Where am I supposed to go for this? Am I, can I wear this to school, right? And we've got all of these codes and all of these rules. And this morning, we're going to start a sermon series. Um, how many of you uh, moms ever read the book, How to Expect When You're Expecting? Or What to Expect, not How to Expect. <laughs> Thank you, Wendy. <laughs> what to Expect When You're Expecting? How many of you fathers read What to Expect When You're Expecting? As I, as I thought it would be. But we're actually going to be talking about what to expect when you're Christianing. And we're going to be looking at the book of James. And what to expect when you're Christianing could be a, like a subtitle to the Holy Bible. The Holy Bible. What to expect when you're Christianing. And if you have read the Bible, you know what's in it. Sometimes we have to read it over and over and over again. I read it like once a year. And you always find new stuff in the Bible when you're reading it. Because sometimes you were really tired the day that you read Daniel chapter 8, and then the next time you read Daniel chapter 8, you're more attentive and you're actually paying attention. So we have to read the Bible over and over and over again. We have to look at it. We have to spend time reading the handbook. We have to spend time knowing what's expected of us as Christians. And for the next little while, we're going to be focusing on this book of James. And a lot of people say the book of James is kind of a, like a handbook within a handbook. It's kind of like this drilled down, almost um, outline version of the things that we can expect while we're Christianing, the things that are expected of us while we're Christianing. And James is, is it's a short book. It's only like six chapters. And it's thought to be the very first book ever written in the New Testament. Before the Gospels, before any of Paul's letters, James was the first book that was written, the first letter that was written that he sent out to all of these Christians. And it was written only about 10 or 15 years after Jesus died, was buried, and resurrected. So it was fairly fresh in James's mind. 
And the book of James starts out like this. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And most historians agree that this James that they're talking about wasn't either of the apostles named James. This was James, the half-brother of Jesus, who was writing this book. And we meet uh, James, the half-brother of Jesus, in Matthew chapter 13, verse 55. Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Judas was the person who wrote the book of Jude. So here's James right here in Matthew chapter 13. And further, we read further in, chap in John chapter 7, verse 5, not even his brothers believed in Jesus. So here's James. He thinks Jesus is crazy. Other places in the Gospels, we read about uh, Jesus' mother and all of his brothers coming and trying to drag him away from where he is and drag him away from the teaching that he's doing and questioning, what are you doing, Jesus? So they started out not believing it, but somewhere after Jesus died and was resurrected and Jesus appeared for 40 days after he was resurrected to all kinds of various people. The Bible says over 500 people saw Jesus after he died. And the Bible tells us specifically that Jesus appeared to James, his half-brother. And we have to assume that sometime after that, or very soon after that, James came to believe that Jesus was who he said he was. And by the time we get to Acts chapter 15, we learn that James is the leader of the church in Jerusalem. So a lot of things happened with this half-brother of Jesus, and one of the things he did is he wrote this letter. And we read on in, in uh, verse 1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. James is writing to the 12 tribes. The 12 tribes are the Jewish people. They are the people of God that we read about in the Old Testament, the people of Israel. And he is writing to those people who have come to faith in Jesus Christ ever since his resurrection. And he says that he is writing to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. The dispersion was an event that happened in Acts chapter 8 just after the death of Stephen, the first person ever to be killed for the Christian faith. And in Acts chapter 1, we read that Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. The apostles stayed, but everybody else dispersed, and that's what James is talking about, this dispersion. But even as they were dispersed throughout the world, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And if we remember Jesus' words to his disciples right before he ascended to heaven, he said, go and make disciples in Jerusalem. Well, they're already in Jerusalem. And in Judea, which was the area around Jerusalem and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This dispersion sent them 
to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And James is talking to these particular Christians. Now, one thing we have to remember, if they were dispersed, they were heading into strange places. They were heading into maybe places they didn't understand. They were heading into places that had different customs, different cultures, and nobody outside of Jerusalem really at that time knew about this person named Jesus. So not only were they heading into uncertainty, they were trying to tell people about something that those people had never seen and those people had never heard. And if you can imagine, there might have been some resistance in those cultures. But these are the people that James is writing to. Now, when we read the letters in the New Testament, especially the letters of Paul, how many of you like to read some of the letters of Paul? Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ and servant of God to the people in Ephesus or to the people in Corinth or to the people wherever. And he usually addresses himself and then he'll say something like this. He'll say, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus or to the Ephesians for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Paul knew how to open a letter. Paul knew how to draw these people in that he was writing to, and he's writing to these different churches, and he was talking all about the great things that God was doing and all of the things that he was thankful for. James is different. James doesn't waste any time getting to the crux of his message. James wants people to know Absolutely immediately, he says, Greetings, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. That's how James starts his letter. What kind of way is that to start a letter, James? Not hi, not how you doing, not how are the kids. Um, hi there, be happy when you suffer. That's the opening to the letter of James. And... I don't know, I mean, if you've got a letter like that, would you want to keep reading that letter? Hey, by the way, your life's going to stink. Uh, let me tell you how. I don't know if I want to keep reading that letter, but they did, and we're going to as well. So James goes on, he says, uh, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And the Jews of the dispersion, they're facing these trials of various kinds, right? First of all, they are in fear for their lives. They're running for their lives because uh, Saul, who later became Paul, he was the head Pharisee, and he was the person who was hunting down Christians, and he was putting them in jail, and he was torturing them, and he was having them killed, and they were running away from this. Imagine running away your whole life, looking over your shoulder, waiting for somebody to arrest you, or torture you, or kill you for your faith. And again, when they settled down, they were settling in these strange places. 
and then they experienced even more persecution. They experienced more things going on. And James here was actually trying to encourage them. He said, look, you're facing trials. You're in a strange place. You've got strange customs. You've got strange cultures. And those people that you're now living among want to bend you to their way of thinking and believing. That's what they want to do. They want you to become like them. You're facing a culture that says, we want you to think that those things that your God calls sin aren't really sin. We want you to think that the things that you are supposed to do because your God says you're supposed to do them, you don't have to do those things. Do the things we want you to do. Live life the way we're living life. And if you don't, we're going to make your life miserable. If you don't, you might not have a life at all. Now, it's really, really good thing that this is something that only happened in 50 A.D. and does not happen in 2023. How many of you have ever experienced somebody telling you that if you don't do something a certain way that you know is sinful, that you know goes against what God has instructed, that they're going to make your life miserable? Nobody? Just me? Okay. That's all right. But I watch this every single day. I watch people being told they have to speak a certain way. They have to use certain words. They have to accept certain things that God has called sin. And if you don't, you're going to get fired. You're going to get suspended. Maybe even expelled. These things happen today, which makes this book of James really applicable to today. And this is going to happen until Jesus comes back. We will always face trials, these tests of our faith. Are you going to stand up for God or are you going to go our way and make it a lot easier on yourself? James says that trials build up steadfastness. Steadfastness is the capacity to bear up in the face of difficulty, to hold on to your faith despite what else is going on around you, to endure, and to have patience. As Christians, we're supposed to be patient people. We need to wait for Jesus. How many of you have been waiting for Jesus for a really long time? And we might be waiting another day. We might be waiting another millennia. We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. What it tells us is that we have to endure. We have to stay patient in the face of all of these things that are barraging us. All of these things that are threatening our lives. Threatening the way we do our Faith. The testing of your faith allows you to endure. Once you face a test and you are able to overcome that test, you're able to endure that test and keep your faith, that's going to help you build more 
That's going to help you endure even more. And the worse the trials get, the worse the culture tries to get you to see things their way and do things their way, even though you know it's wrong, the more faith you're going to build. And that's why James says, take comfort. You're going to have tests. That's part of Christianing. You're going to face trials. You're going to face obstacles. Face those obstacles. Stand up under what is going on. Persevere. And your faith will grow. But bearing up under these trials is difficult. It's so much easier just to go with what everybody else is saying. It's so much easier to do what everybody else is doing. Even if we know it's wrong, it's easier just to go along. Because that way people will leave us alone. But that's not what living the Christian life is. The living the Christian life is living lives that are pleasing to God through Jesus Christ, regardless of what the world tells us. Because the world's going to tell us that sin is not sin. They're going to tell us that good is bad and that bad is good. They will look at you and they will say, Christianity is bad. The people who are Christians do bad things. The people who are Christians treat other people badly. We are supposed to treat other people godly. And sometimes people just don't agree with that. And if you're going to tell somebody that something is a sin when they keep saying that it's not, they're really going to get mad at you. They're really going to get upset with you. And they're really going to start battling you. And these are the things that happen. We can't allow ourselves to be swayed by these variable cultural things that change every single day. Because we have one word. We have one God who has given us that word to tell us what it is to live a godly life. And if we are not wise enough to recognize these tests, these trials for what they are, because the world really likes to dress them up and make them look pretty, and if we are not wise enough to recognize that, we could be in big trouble. And that's why James goes on to say in James 1.5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. Without reproach means without judgment. God's going to give you wisdom to overcome these trials. God is going to give you wisdom to understand when something that's being said to you is not godly. Even if they dress it up to sound godly. He's going to give you the wisdom to know those things. And God knows we need wisdom to live in our culture. Every Christian who has ever lived has needed wisdom to live in their culture. In Job 28, Job talks extensively about wisdom, and he asks the question, where can wisdom be found? Where is it? How can I get it? And after much consideration and much discussion with his friends, he comes to the conclusion that God understands the way of wisdom. 
and he knows where it is. God, who created the entire universe, knows how everything works. He knows how everything ought to be. And that is where we should find our wisdom. If we want wisdom, God has it. And if we really want wisdom, he's willing to give it to us generously when we need it so that we can bear up under the trial that we're going, under, or going through right now. Whatever that trial is, he wants to give us the wisdom to, to stand up, to be able to recognize what's going on and to remain righteous, to remain godly. And some people say, you know, why do I need to pray? God knows everything, right? He knows what I need. He knows what I'm going through. Why do I need to tell him? Why do I need to ask for wisdom? Why shouldn't God just put it right in my head? But prayer is not really about telling God what we need. Prayer is not just about telling God what we're going through. Prayer is about admitting to God our inadequacy. It is also about telling God that we rely on him. You rely on God? Are you willing to say, God, you know what? I'm kind of dumb. I'm, I'm not really sure uh, what's going on in this world today, and, and some of this stuff sounds really good. People are telling me that the Bible really doesn't say what it says and that, we've, and that we've misinterpreted it. That sounds really good. I, I, I need some help. Could you, could you give me a little wisdom this way? Because I have no idea. I have to rely on you. Can you give me that wisdom? And he will. He will give you wisdom as a good and perfect gift. Now, he's not going to give you all the wisdom all at once. That's not how God works. Because if he gave us all the wisdom all at once, why would we have to rely on God anymore? God's going to give you the wisdom to endure that trial that you're under. He's going to give you the wisdom to understand what the culture is asking of you is not something that he approves of. But God is only going to give you that wisdom if you believe that he can if you believe that he is the keeper of wisdom. James 1, 6 through 8 says, But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And we read this passage, and that sounds pretty harsh, right? How many of you have ever doubted? Any doubters in here? I have. Big time. That's not what James is talking about. That's not what this passage means. This isn't about having questions about God. This isn't about trying to figure things out and relying on God to help you with the answers. This is about a person who is actually double-minded. What that means is having one's mind or soul divided between God and the world. Basically what it's saying is we want everything. We want the blessings of God while participating in the sins of the world. 
So this is not a person that James is talking about who's wrestling with doubt. Wrestling with doubt and overcoming that doubt actually builds our faith. It helps us to persevere. This is a person that is trying to have it all. They have one mind for God, and if we don't want to put too fine a point on it, the other mind is for Satan. And they want to try to live in that balance of God and Satan. And what happens, James says, they're driven and tossed by the wind. They want God when it's convenient, and they want Satan when it's offering something that they want, something that they want to do. And how many times have we ever looked at ourselves and said, you know what, it must be God's will that I do this thing, even though he doesn't want me to do it, because it helps me. It enriches me. Or it helps one of my family members. That's the double-mindedness that James is talking about here. And what he's saying is if you are regularly and willfully doing sinful things on Saturday night, don't come to church on Sunday morning expecting to get anything from God. That's what he's saying. That's double-mindedness. God will grant us wisdom when we live a repentant, righteous life. Now that's not saying God's not going to help us when we have temptations and we kind of fall down a little bit. He's going to help us back up and we're going to learn about that later in James. But what he's saying is I'm purposely going to do XYZ six days a week and then I'm going to come in and say, oh God, forgive me, and then go back to doing the same thing six days a week. That's not going to build your faith. That is you in the world. And James, he gives us an example of the trials and the reactions that the faithful can have when they remember that everything depends on God. He says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. If you're lowly, if you're poor, really easy to depend on God, isn't it? When I don't have anything, I'm on my knees all the time and I'm praying to God, God, please provide for my family. God, please Make, let me get a job, let me get a car, let me buy a house, let me do whatever. If I'm poor, it's really easy to say that we rely on God. But when we're rich, when we have everything, or we're pursuing even more, even Jesus says it's harder for a rich man, to, or for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter into heaven. Because the rich man is depending on himself. He is pursuing those things that will enrich him. Now I'm not saying that if you're rich you can't be godly. What I'm saying is if you are rich and you are pursuing these things and you're relying on yourself, that's not a godly way of living. That's not a righteous way of living. That's you making your own decisions, making your own choices, and having in the back of your mind that God will clean up the mess if something goes wrong. 
What James is talking about here is guess what? The rich man, all of his pursuits, all of the money that he gathers, all of the land that he gathers, all of these things that he gathers, when he dies, he still has nothing. When he dies, all of his stuff goes away. Now we might say, oh, well, it's going to his family, or it's going to here, and it's going to there. But if he doesn't teach his children that the pursuit of riches is not why we live on earth, then they're also going to die, not knowing how to rely on God. And that's all we're talking about here, is reliance on God. When you look at the things that you have, do you look at them and say, I need more? Or do you look at them and say, I need to use what I have in as much of an effort as possible to tell other people about Jesus Christ? Even if I am a successful business owner, am I using my business to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with other people? Because we can't separate business from God. Whatever your life is over here, it needs to be over here and vice versa. Those are the things that James is talking about. And he says, the foolish person does not understand this. The foolish person relies on themselves. They fade away, they die in the midst of pursuing their riches, they can't take it with them, and they end up dead spiritually. And James's goal just like God's goal is that none should perish, but that all should have eternal life. And I want to tell you right now, everything in this world is going to pass away. Everything in this world is going to fall to dust eventually. James wants us to strive for the riches that do not die. And in James 1.12, he says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, when he has accomplished godliness in the face of incredible struggle, incredible opposition by the culture, when he has done these things, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. The crowns of this world are going to tarnish. They're going to rust. They're going to fall apart. You won't even know they looked like crowns by the end. The foolish person pursues that crown. The foolish person pursues those riches. The wise person seeks more wisdom, more godly wisdom so that he can stand up so that she can persevere in the face of her friends who are telling her that she's not a good person because she says she believes that God said what he said in his book you can't believe those things anymore they're outdated God wants us to change that's not how I read the Bible 
If you've read the Bible, honestly, it's probably not how you've read the Bible either. God's Word is unchanging. We need to have wisdom when we're reading it so that we know that when God says something is sin, something is sin. And it's sin no matter where you live, no matter when you live. The wise person seeks out wisdom to stand up under their trials. And that person, that wise person, when they have stood up under their trials, when they have said, no, I'm not giving in to these whims of the world, I am standing up for godly righteousness all of my life. Those people receive the crown of life. That is a crown of eternity. It will never rust. It will never be destroyed. When we have gone through all of the trials of this human life wisely, when we have stood up for righteousness, regardless of what the culture says, when we proclaim our faith and our dependency on God. And that is a really crucial part of this. We need to depend on God. And when we do that, at the end of our lives, God promises life. God promises a life free of trial. He promises a life free of want. Life with God is going to be life with our sustainer. It's going to be life with our Father forever. And we will never know struggle again. Our handbook, the Bible, tells us to seek eternal life. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. To the exclusion of everything else, rely on God. Read the Sermon on the Mount again. Jesus has a whole section in the Sermon on the Mount talking about how God takes care of the birds, how God takes care of the, the plants, And he says, you are worth many, many birds. And God's going to take care of you if you rely on him. If you seek him and his righteousness, then you don't have to worry about anything else. And this is what James teaches us. Yes. Greetings. Life's going to stink for a while. Life's going to be hard for a while. But if you can endure this life, things are going to be good. You pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for today. We thank you for this time that we can come together and worship you, that we can come together and, and learn from your word. Father, help us to rid ourselves if we are of this double mind. Help us to see that we should 
rely on you, that we should seek you always, not just on Sunday morning, not just during our five-minute devotional time. We should seek you always. And we should resist and bear up and endure a culture that wants to keep us away from you. Father, not only that, help us to show others that you can be relied on, that they can depend on you for their sustenance. They can depend on you for wisdom. They can depend on you for eternal life. Let us be those lights. Let us shine Jesus Christ and his promise of eternal life to all people. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. The world's way is an easy way. Not a lot of obstacles, not a lot of troubles, or at least that's what they'd have you think. Ask God for wisdom to understand not only how to go through the trials that you're going through, ask him for the wisdom to know why he is the way. God bless you this